So if you've got a Bible, uh, you might want to start turning to Nehemiah 8. We're going to be reading verses 5 to 12, just a short bit this morning. You'll be glad to know. Last time I spent, I think, about 30 minutes reading my uh, section. Just a short bit this time. Um, Good morning. If you're a visitor here this morning, uh, my name's Raj. I'm one of the elders, along with Simon and Sarush. Uh, Sarush and Simon. Sorry, I always get them mixed up. Um, um, uh, uh, and, and we help to oversee the goings-on um, in the church. So it's good to have you if you're a visitor this morning. Thank you for making time to be with us. Um, 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 if you, as, as, as Sarush said, if you do have time, please, we'd love to connect with you at the back, maybe have a chat, maybe have a drink together. So please do join us at the back. We'd love to meet you. Uh, so we're going to be continuing picking through uh, ch- um, chapters of the book of Nehemiah. That's what we've been doing from uh, the Old Testament. Great to hear what Luke just shared there. Thrilling. Uh, it'll be exciting, those uh, God big picture evenings. As we've said before, this is a book, an Old Testament book, about building, but not just any old construction project. No. This is a prophetic call, Jubilee, to those who love Jesus to be the glorious church he's called us to be, to give ourselves to the building of a beautiful city where God's life and love break out right in the midst of a city that so desperately needs it. It's a book calling the church to be broken-hearted for the things that break God's heart too. It's a call to action. It's a call, as, as Angela said, to, uh, uh, to turn up the temperature. I love that. To turn up the temperature. To allow Jesus uh, to burn off anything that gets in the way of what he has called us to do, of our relationship with him. It's a call to action. It's a call, um, it's a call to worship. What comes into the minds... When we think, what comes into our minds when we think about God is probably the most important thing. Toza, what are you giving your life to? That's what we've been doing over the last um, few weeks. That's what we've been exhorting you to pray about, think about as family, as friends together. Some of you might be thinking, why at all bother with the Old Testament? As uh, Luke just said there. We only, have a few hours of, of, of the, we only have a few hours in the day. Why bother wasting our time with the old bit of the Bible when we've got the new? And anyway, isn't, isn't the new covenant, the life now, all about Jesus? Those are all stories. Those are history. Spin them. No. Chris Wright, an Old Testament scholar, brilliant writer, writes, uh, books like, uh, writes about books like Nehemiah. His big book is The Mission of God. Uh, and he says this, there's quite a bit on the screen there, but it's important. He says, he says um, when, when, when thinking about the Old Testament, when reading the Old Testament, he talks about Jesus and he says, these are the words Jesus read. Yeah, These are the stories he knew. These were the songs he sang. These were the depths of wisdom and revelation and prophecy that shaped his whole view of uh, life, the universe, and everything. This is where he found his insights uh, into the mind of the Father God. Um, 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 above all, this is where he found the shape of his own identity and goal of his own mission. In short, the deeper you go into understanding the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. That's why we read the Old Testament. It's pointing to Jesus. We're getting his heart. 
So that's what we're doing uh, this morning. So we're going to be reading chapter 8, verses 5 to 12. We're coming close as we come close to the heart of Jesus. So just a little bit of background again for if we have visitors here this morning. And uh, Nehemiah, as we well know, is an official of the great king, uh, King Ar- Persian king, King Artaxerxes. And he's sitting comfortably one day in the winter palace of the monarchs in Sush. Uh, when God arrests his attention about the state of the city walls back in his hometown, Jerusalem, the city of God. And then he weeps. We've read about that, didn't we? He weeps, he fasts, he prays. He mourns over the destruction and despair back home, which kicks him into action. We're not a people who hide behind prayer. No, no, no. Prayer parachutes us into places that need God. And it says that, doesn't it? And they start building. Nehemiah 2.18, let us start rebuilding. The God of heaven will give us success, faith. So they began his good works. And eventually, we've come to the point now where uh, they've come to the end of the building project. The walls are up. The gates are not burning anymore. The doors are in place. Everything's ready. Everything is finished. The shame of broken walls has been restored again. But, but there are scars. There's disillusionment still in the people of God. Their lives are in shambles. These guys, think about it, have spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity with all the separation and oppression, death, uprooting, destruction uh, that they have witnessed and all they have. Um, and, and although they've finished the walls, they feel battered. A battered people. Nehemiah 9 echoes their despair. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you, God, gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruits and other good things it produces. But we're not doing that. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. That is the people of God at the end of the building of this great wall. We can get all rah-rah about it, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible is truthful and honest. And what we're about to read today is how Ezra, Ezra was the priest who came way before, a little bit before Nehemiah to build the temple. He was a priest and scribe. And what we're about to read today is how he exhorts the people to recognize that despite what they feel and see, God is bringing hope and joy back to the city. That's what we've been there singing about. That's what that poem about, uh, that Holly wrote, was about. A joy that changes everything. A joy that releases them, the people of God, into the bigger plans, the next phase, if you like, of God's mission in the earth. So let's read it, shall we? Nehemiah 8, 5 to 12. Ezra opened the book. Yeah, this is the book of the law. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, as we were just singing. Then they bowed down and worshipped their Lord with the faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Peliah, 
instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what is being read. That's what we try and do on Sunday mornings at God's Big Picture in your community groups. Then then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day, he's... They were, they were recognizing the plight of the people, the feelings of the people. And he said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy. It's a command. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Do not grieve. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, this is a holy day, do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And in fact, this celebration lasted for days and days and days. And this celebration command was um, given every single day. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of joy and celebration. I thank you, Lord, even come what may, whatever's going on in our lives, I, I thank you, Lord, that you are the joy bringer, the joy giver, the joy releaser uh, into our hearts. And I pray as we hear um, what you've put on my heart this morning that you want to say to your people, I pray, Lord God, that you Ignite a passion. Bring about joy in people. There are people here who are suffering. There are people here who are disillusioned. There are people here who are joyful and on fire for God. And I pray, Lord God, that you will come to each person individually this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you will lift heads where heads need lifting. Push people out where people need pushing out. Draw people in. Build your relationship with them. Ignite a fire for, for the glory of your name in Teesside, the nation and the nations. Thank you, Lord. Well, this is the main thing this morning. Joy. Joy. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. I often forget that that, you know, thing that, 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 that phrase that I always say is from Nehemiah. I often forget. You often think, oh, it's from Psalms, it's from Proverbs, or it's something like that. It's actually from Nehemiah. So a few things about joy, just to get us in the mood. And I, th- I feel um, if we have time, what time is it? If we have time, hopefully we'll be able to pray uh, and encourage one another. So uh, just be aware, just, be, just get ready for that. Um, so a few things on joy. Firstly, joy is for real. No. Joy is for real. Yeah? Joy is for real. We are the people of God. And if the people of God aren't a joyful people, there's something not right. This is a biblical fact. If you're a Christian here this morning, um, Christian joy is not an option. Did you hear that? It's not an option. When Ezra exhorted the people to celebrate, he didn't say, he didn't say hey, you guys, on, if you're, if you guys who are not feeling up to it this morning and didn't get out of the right side of bed, Um, If you're not feeling, can you just hang out to the right while the rest of you go and have a party and have great fun because you're, woohoo! He didn't say that. 
He said, go, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. It was a command. There wasn't a choice. We see it throughout the Bible. The Apostle Paul in Romans 4 who went through loads and loads of bad, bad stuff on account of his faith. He says this in Romans 4, Therefore, since we have been justified with faith, this is our restored relationship with God made right before God because of Jesus' um, uh, salvation. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God through Jesus. John, the late John Stott, uh, in his commentary on Romans, says this, about this paragraph. It seems clear from this paragraph that the main mark of justified believers is what? Joy. Joy. Let me help you with this. Question. How do you know an apple... I think I might have done this before. How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? Jonathan, go on. It, that's right. It grows apples. Can you give him a round of applause? A slightly more tricky question. Slightly more tricky question. Slightly more tricky question. Uh, Mohammed, how do you know an orange tree is an orange tree? By. I can't hear you. Oh, come on then. Another person. How do we know? An orange tree is an orange tree. Because it produces lemons. No, oranges. Ah. Now I'm going to really put you to the test. How do you know a church like this one, Jubilee, has been transformed, radically affected by, the God's, by God's Holy Spirit's presence and power? A bit louder. No. Oh, well, almost. It produces the fruit of the Spirit, of which one is joy. Well done. The fr- Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know a church is full of the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy is one of them. It's a command too. We see in Jesus' final hours before he's going to the agonizing cross. Think about that. Jesus talks to his disciples about this very joy as he's about to be hung there and tortured. He says this, Now is your time of grief, but I will, give, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take that joy away from you. It's not optional. He doesn't say, depending on whether the borough, Andy, uh, win or lose, you will rejoice. He doesn't say, depending on the stock market or your GCSE results or how your marriage is going or how your kids are doing or how church is going, then you'll rejoice. No. He says, when you see me again, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. That's what you've been sensing this morning if you're not a Christian. Jesus is alive. And therefore, on encountering the alive, very, very alive, very experiential, the risen Jesus, that results in joy. It results in rejoicing. There is no other response. I'm excited about this. Can you tell? Jesus is all about 
joy. I believe God wants us to get this. The groom transforms his bride into a joyful one. You and me, this church, all of us, when people see us at Alpha, at Open Door, at Sparklers, at, the Hope, at Hope House, serving kids through safe families, playing in the football, uh, Jubilee football team, in the workplace, at school, at college, at you, everywhere, they bump into bags of joy, says Jesus. Even in difficulty. The bride is smiling. Not many don't when they walk down the aisle. At the wedding of Cana, what did Jesus do? What did he do? He made 150 gallons of water turn into incredible wine. I love that story. That was the, think about this, that was the first thing he did as he kicked off his ministry. When you're starting out as your, your public campaign, your first thing, what you do with your first thing, what what you do describes the essence of what you came for. It's, it's telling, what, telling people what you're all about. His first miracle wasn't, interestingly, feeding the poor or walking on water or healing the sick or casting out demons. No. He did all of that stuff gradually. He did all of that. But his first thing, the thing that he, he wanted to show people first was, was, was setting fire setting a a dull and dreary, boring party on fire. We heard about fire this morning, didn't we? Jesus, Jesus is saying, my life and death and resurrection is ushering in a new joy and celebration that you've never, ever witnessed before. Jubilee, that is your name. That is our name. That is what Christianity is all about. Joy, unspeakable. I think you're getting my first point. In Luke, there's a story, right at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, there's a story of Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary pregnant with Jesus. And suddenly, it's an interesting detail, and suddenly on meeting Mary with Jesus in her... Elizabeth on meeting Mary with Jesus in her tummy, Elizabeth's unborn baby leaps for joy. In her womb. It's a fascinating detail, that. In Psalm 96, it says, when Jesus returns, the forest will sing for joy. Let me ask you a question. If the trees, if the babies in the womb, if anything getting near to Jesus uh, is leaping and singing for joy, why aren't we? Why aren't we? Jubilee, joy is the mark of every Christian. It's our birthright. It's our inheritance, if you like. And God this morning wants us to get this into our very soul. I believe ungodly, sinful joylessness is one of the main setbacks to the church's kingdom, to the church's kingdom effectiveness. Think about that. I'm not talking that we, we shouldn't deal with suffering, not at all. But joylessness is not a mark of a Christian, even in suffering. The second, I'll get on to that, the second thing is joy no matter what. Joy no matter what. These guys, as they came back from Babylon, were still suffering. Nehemiah says that the people were in despair. Uh, yet Ezra says, he doesn't say, there, there, there. No, no, he probably did. But he, but he also says, this is this day is holy, set apart, 
to our Lord God. He's the main thing. And as a result of that truth, do not grieve. As a result of that truth, do not grieve. Do not mourn. Do not weep. For the people were all weeping. You know what that sounds when I first read that? It sounded a little bit insensitive to me. A little crass, maybe. They'd gone through a lot, these guys. Was Ezra just being mean or uncaring? Not at all. You see, Ezra understood something, and this is very important. You see, Ezra understood something about the Christian God, Yahweh. So did Nehemiah. He understood what a right response was to hearing God's law, his truth. You see, you see, Christian joy, hear this, Christian joy is unique because it is not based on circumstance, but rather in the goodness and grace of God. That is a radical statement. I'm going to say it again because I can see you're very bowled over by that. Christian joy is unique in that it is not based on our circumstances, but rather in the goodness and grace of God. The apostles and different writers of the Bible often declared their joy in the midst of terrible suffering, didn't they? James uh, says in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, count it all joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 2 Corinthians 12.10, the Apostle Paul says, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And he got the lot. When I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Peter, Peter, 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, happy in God. Because the, because the Spirit of glory and the God Spirit, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. These guys knew about suffering in similar ways to quite a few of you guys who've suffered persecution and loss in other nations. You'd be able to relate to them more than we do. Question. Question. What is suffering? What is suffering? Suffering... Is fav- if you think about it, suffering is favorable, good circumstances going away, isn't it? Kind of. That's a very simple um, definition. Suffering is good things um, and favorable things going away. You see, this is where I think the confusion lies. Because I actually don't believe Christian joy is what the world calls happiness. My friends at work or in different places... What the world calls happiness is this, getting control of your life so that you keep your circumstances favorable all of the time as best you can. Trying harder and harder to make my career go well and climb the ladder. Make my bank account grow bigger. Um, make, uh, please my husband and kids. Try harder and harder to think positively. These necessarily aren't bad things. Some of them are actually very good things. But what Ezra, what other Bible writers are getting across is that Christian joy, biblical joy, a joy that perseveres, God's robust, strengthening joy is not rooted primarily in these things that in these things because they're too unstable. They rock about. They eventually, all of them, eventually fail us. 
All these other things that we spend our efforts and time chasing after, that we idolize, that we worship, that we become addicted to, think about that, eventually crash and burn. Always. The journalist Amy Bloom really echoed this worldly view of happiness. Uh, She wrote an article called The Wrap of Happiness. She said, The real problem with happiness is neither its pursuers or the books that they write about happiness. It's actually happiness itself. It's transience, the fact that it's short-lived. It's, it, is, uh, it is deep but often brief. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved dies. It cannot last forever. But Jubilee, this isn't how Jesus, the Bible, sees it. Christian joy is very different. This joy in the Lord is unique, as I've said. It's unparalleled. Ezra says it's our strength. Why? Because Christian joy isn't based on those shaky circumstances, but rather on a person, Jesus Christ, God himself. He's the one who is not susceptible to all these circumstances, but in control of them, even even when we sometimes can't see it. He's the one who's not subject to the ups and downs uh, situations of life. He's unchangeable, always reliable, never rocking, unwavering, our firm foundation. But you know what? That sounds like Jesus just gets us through. Just helps us make, make it across the line. Hang in there, folks, says God. We're not going to settle for that this morning. Because the Bible doesn't. The Apostle Paul didn't. Peter didn't. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, didn't. Job, who went through loads of suffering. He didn't just settle for that basic Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through God the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us us. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying this, and hear it because it is groundbreaking when it breaks out in our lives. He's saying that in the midst of suffering, in the thick of circumstances going wrong, life going pear-shipped, it's not that God just gets gets you through by the skin of your teeth, but rather, he's saying, Christian joy oppressing into the delight of Jesus grows in it. (laughs) Wow. He's saying unfavorable circumstances used by God can strengthen you, fortify you, produce character, perseverance, and assurance of a hope in God despite as a result of what you're feeling, what you're going through. Do you get it? This is remarkable. This joy in God really is our strength and courage and boldness, especially in the bad times, as it forces us deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus. 
If life's not going the way you were expecting this morning, God wants you to hear that. The Holy Spirit wants to minister that into your situation and your soul this morning. John Piper, Baptist minister and teacher and writer, he says, every joy that does not have Jesus as the central gladness of that joy is a hollow joy that in the end will burst like a bubble. That's the unshakable joy that we've been hearing about. If you've been on Alpha, coming from Gavin, Baz Mohammed, Rob, Shirley, Matthew, Nev, Sue, others, as they've given their story of Jesus' joy in trials. Do you have this radical joy, Jubilee? Do you have this unique joy that never, ever fails you? As God's love gets poured into your hearts day in, day out, through God the Holy Spirit. I was praying for a guy at, the Christi- at a Christian union, union healing meeting just a few days ago who, who was steeped in depression and bitterness. He had asperges, yearning. And he was actually saying, I'm yearning for my eyes to be opened by the reality of Jesus. And that's what we prayed for him. For the unstoppable, never-ceasing joy of the Lord, God the Holy Spirit, to come into him and be his strength. Christian joy is certain because God is certain. Christian joy is unique because in that uh, is unique because um, because it is not based on changeable circumstances, but an unchanging God. Finally, finally, joy breaks out. That's what excites me most of all. Philip Yancey writes this, and I agree with him. To men, too many churches have become mausoleums for the dead rather than coliseums of prayers for a living God. They have lost the spirit of Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit, overflowing from them. They have lost their enthusiasm. They have lost their joy for Jesus. You know what? Revival... It's all very good praying for revival out there, but revival first and foremost starts in the people of God. It starts with an overwhelming sense of joy and confidence in those who love Jesus, you and me. It bubbles, it bubbles, until eventually it overflows out and drenches the lives of others around us. We see that on Alpha in different settings. These streams of living water start overflowing into the schools, into job centers, into workplaces, into prisons, into streets, into council offices, into the homes of many. This holy rain pours, pours, pours and saturates and soaks and penetrates and the lives and establishments of Cross Teesside, the UK and the nations. Philip Yancey writes again, the church is a place to exult, to give thanks, to celebrate the good news that all is forgiven, that God is love, that victory is certain. That is the truth in which we walk, Jubilee. Joy breaks out. God's love, God's grace, God's healing, God's uh, all over the place, everywhere. That's my prayer. That's what I pray on Mondays when I have an extended time of prayer. Joy in the city. That's the phrase that God put on my heart for this sermon. Joy, our joy, God's joy in us in the city. Imagine that. 
This is a joy. This, this joy in Jesus is unstoppable if you think about it. In city after city, town after town, I love the Christ Central stories of church planting, the nation story, New Frontiers Worldwide, church plant, church plant. Um, uh, um, um, Michael Acotia talking about different churches, different people talking about it. The joy of Jesus Community after community, nation after nation, joy, joy, joy in Ghana, in Tanzania, in Ethiopia, in Eritrea, in Zambia, in Canada, in Canada, we're reading about it in Peru, in Mexico, in Cambodia, in Turkey, all over the world. Don't be disillusioned by what's going on in the church in your, in your immediate setting. The, jo- the joy of Jesus is exploding globally. Jubilee, this joy is about fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, get what he's saying there, you were the joy that set him on the mission for the cross. For you, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this joy can be a reality, is a reality, is a mark of Jesus' saving work in you and through you and bursting out from you. Changing everyone. Changing everything. Joy. 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 Joy in the city. Jubilee, will you, will we be that kind of church? Will the passion of Jesus in our hearts have that result in the city? Will you allow the gospel joy news of Jesus change you like that? Because revival starts in you to break out in you and then from you. Will you be Jesus' joy in the city no matter what? Calling people, as I think Jen said, to come and come and come and keep coming into this vibrant dynamic of God's holy fire and joy that is the church. He's the great joy giver, isn't He? I'm going to end with this quote and I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray Oh, we're doing all right. I'd like to pray. If the band can come up, that would be helpful as well. That would be good. Augustine once said, there is a joy. He was an early church father, way, way back. Augustine once said, there is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love thee, Jesus, for thine own sake whose joy thou thyself art, Jesus. This is the happy life, to rejoice to thee, for thee, and in thee. This is it. There is no other. Let's stand.